a trusted voice of truth and light. God gave me a gift. I shovel well. I shovel very well. And a rally point for those who've accepted the reality that they are not sheep. We've got a blind date with destiny. And it looks like she's ordered the lobster. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Well, hello there and welcome to the show. Hey, I'm glad you found us, however you did. Whether you're listening to us on the radio, catching the podcast, or, I don't know, maybe a friend memorized the show and is reciting it to you. (laughs) Thank you so much for listening, and thank you for checking out a program that uh, strives each and every day to supply you with thoughtful, informative commentary and interviews for people who delight in thinking for themselves. If you're one of those people, I I am happy to count myself among your uh, circle of friends, or at least among the people that uh, that you're willing to listen to. That's it. Just it seems there are a lot of folks who aren't aren't really willing to question things these days, or maybe they're too scared to question things these days. So I'm going to give you some very potent intellectual ammunition to better understand the world around us. You don't have to believe everything you hear on this program, but it will invite you to think clearly and independently about the world around us as well as what you and I can do to change things for the better within our circle of influence. Some great sponsors make this program possible on a day-to-day basis. They include sponsors like Sewing and Quilting Center in St. George, Utah, HSLAmmo.com, the Heather Turner team at Patriot Home Mortgage, LifesavingFood.com. They've got a great special going on for my listeners. I'll be telling you more about that a little bit later on in the hour. And MonticelloCollege.org as well as GovernYourIncome.com. So today I thought I would start with uh, one of the most shocking lessons that, uh, that most of us learn at some point in our life is that uh, the greatest acts of evil are usually carried out by ordinary people. I know we're supposed to believe, oh, it's some monstrous person. Maybe they have a funny mustache or, or something, you know, some distinguishing characteristic that you know the person you're dealing with is pure evil. Yes, I know. I, I'm, the, the bar has been lowered of late. Uh, currently, any uh, cisgendered white male who believes in God may also fill that role. But, but you know, typically we think of uh, the people who do evil as, you know, people who are responsible for the deaths of millions of others. But the truth of the matter is that the greatest acts of evil are usually just ordinary folks doing what they think they have to do. Kate Wand has a very enlightening commentary and also a short documentary that you should watch about the line dividing good and evil. And it's a really great reminder that the surest way to limit evil is to choose not to let it enter the world through us. This is what Kate Wand has to say. She says, Hannah Arendt, A-E-R-N-D-T, Arendt, was a Jewish German political philosopher who fled Germany back in 1933 and then Europe in 1941 so she could start a new life in America. After the war, having escaped the fate of millions of other Jewish people in the Holocaust, Hannah Arendt tried to reason through the madness. She was looking for answers and she traveled to Israel in 1961 so she could attend the trial of Adolf Eichmann, a Nazi bureaucrat. 
Eichmann was convicted and sentenced to hang for his incommensurate crimes against humanity, including his supervision over and direction of every part of the implementation of the final solution. In her report on the trial, Arendt wrote that more than half a dozen psychiatrists had certified Eichmann as normal, quote, more normal at any rate than I am after having examined him, one of them was said to have exclaimed, while another found that his whole psychological outlook, his attitude toward his wife and mother, or his wife and children, his mother and father, brothers, sisters, and friends, was not only normal, but most desirable. Now, they knew, of course, that it would have been very comforting indeed to believe that Eichmann was a monster, says Arendt. The trouble with Eichmann was that precisely there were so many like him, and that those many were neither perverted nor sadistic, that they were and still are terribly and terrifyingly normal. Isn't that crazy? She asks, uh, in this case, uh, Kate Wand asks, what if the greatest acts of evil are committed by ordinary people? Alexander Solzhenitsyn describes the following memory in the Gulag Archipelago. A high-ranking soldier, he's arrested by the Soviets while still in uniform, following victory against the Nazis. On his way to the Gulag, he takes pleasure in allowing what he then perceives to be a lesser man than himself carry his heavy luggage. Reflecting upon his life, Solzhenitsyn writes, It was granted me to carry away from my prison years on my bent back, which nearly broke beneath its load, this essential experience, how a human being becomes evil and how good. In the intoxication of youthful successes, I'd felt myself to be infallible. I was therefore cruel. In the surfeit of power, I was a murderer and an oppressor. In my most evil moments, I was convinced that I was doing good, and I was well supplied with systematic arguments. And it was only when I, was, when I lay there on the rotting prison straw that I sensed within myself the first stirrings of good. He says, gradually it was disclosed to me that the line separating good and evil passes not through states, nor between classes, nor between political parties either, but right through every human heart and through all human hearts. This line shifts. He says, inside us it oscillates with the years, and even within hearts overwhelmed by evil, one small bridgehead of good is retained. And even in the best of hearts, there remains an uprooted and unuprooted small corner of evil. Evil is often depicted as a fantastical fairy tale about some other people from some other time and some faraway land. By the way, that I just want to make clear, I've ended uh, Solzhenitsyn's quote here. This is uh, Kate Wand speaking. She says, evil is often depicted as a fantastical fairy tale about some other people from some other time in a faraway land, victimized by some external evil force, complete with cartoonish villains and heroes. Evil is grandiose and easily identifiable. It wears a specific face and has a life of its own. And it certainly doesn't require the collaboration of perfectly regular, seemingly good people. Nor could we ever be unenlightened enough to let such an occurrence repeat itself through us. She says, by imagining evil as a great dark foreign specter with a life of its own, we move further away from our ability to understand it. And by dividing people into black and white categories, good versus evil, us versus them, we deny its, ver- its true nature, which is part of our nature. Evil doesn't exist in a vacuum. And by, dis- by dismissing evil as an enigma far removed, we shut down the capacity to see it in others, more importantly, 
we shut down the capacity to see it in ourselves. And if the potential for evil resides in all of us, what is it that triggers its expression? It's nothing extreme. In fact, it's the reverse. Evil is ordinary. Hannah Arendt wrote, Good can be radical. Evil can never be radical. It can only be extreme, for it possesses neither depth nor any demonic dimension yet. And this is its horror. It can spread like a fungus over the surface of the earth and lay waste the entire world. Evil comes from a failure to think. It defies thought, for as soon as thought tries to engage itself with evil and examine its premises and principles from which it originates, it's frustrated because it finds nothing there. That is the banality of evil, end quote. Now, Kate Wan says, when people do not think, others can put thoughts in their heads. And if the greatest acts of evil are committed and accomplished by ordinary people who've lost their ability to think, this leaves a wide gap easily filled with propaganda. Again, Hannah Arendt says this effectiveness of this kind of propaganda demonstrates one of the chief characteristics of modern masses. They do not believe in anything visible in the reality of their own existence or their own experience, rather. They don't trust their eyes and ears, but only their imaginations, which may be caught by anything that is at once universal and consistent in itself. What convinces the masses are not facts, not even invented facts, but only the consistency of the system of which they are presumably part. In her book, The Origins of Totalitarianism, Hannah Arendt explains the notion of the masses hypnotized by an enormous lie. Quote, a mixture of gullibility and cynicism had been an outstanding characteristic of mob mentality before it became an everyday phenomenon of the masses. In an ever-changing, incomprehensible world, the masses had reached the point where they would, at the same time, believe everything and nothing think that everything was possible and nothing was true. She says mass propaganda discovered that its audience was ready at all times to believe the worst, no matter how absurd, and did not particularly object to being deceived because it held every statement to be a lie anyhow. Well, Kate Wan says we are living a lie now and we know it. The question is, will this one end differently? I mean, this is pretty profound in the implications here, right? You and I are thinking, well, I'm a decent person. I'm not out there causing any evil. I'm not even, you know, openly supporting it. I'm just kind of hunkered down here waiting for this storm to blow over. But the bottom line is we do have a role to play. We're going to talk more about that, just the other side of these messages. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, welcome back to the show. Just want to give a very quick shout out here to lifesavingfood.com. Oh, yeah. Got a great deal going on for my listeners through Christmas Eve. Here it is. Lifesavingfood.com, of course, is a food storage supplier. They uh, deal in ReadyWise food storage products, professionally packed and uh, good for 25 years shelf life if you do your part in other words don't set them out in the sun don't leave it in the trunk of your car you know just keep it in a in a cool dark place and this stuff is good to go for 25 years that's nice because you're going to need that food at some point well here's the here's the deal 
Whatever it is you're looking for, if you're looking for, you know, a, to make a large food storage investment, if you're looking to just, you know, fill in a few gaps in what you already have, if you're looking to give some gifts for Christmas, my listeners receive a 30% discount, free shipping, no sales tax, if they use the coupon code HYDE, H-Y-D-E, at checkout. Click on the link that I supply in my show notes. It's there at my website, thebrianhydeshow.com, lifesavingfood.com. Just want to give a couple quick follow-up thoughts on the commentary from Kate Wand and the article she had about the line dividing good and evil. One of the things that she she talks about here is we wonder how far this current wave of evil that's taking place will ripple. And by the way, I, I assume you're listening to this program because you you already have recognized that what is going on around us, this this continuous restriction of people's natural rights is wrong. And it doesn't matter whether it's being played out like it is in Australia right now where people are being forcibly placed into quarantine camps or like it's playing out in Germany and Austria right now where essentially the unvaccinated are under house arrest, particularly in Austria. It could be something happening here in the United States where it's just, you know, mask enforcement or or otherwise, you know, vaccine mandates, by the way. We do have some good news on this, the vaccine mandates being, you know, shot down by three separate federal courts here. But the bottom line is how far this current wave of evil will go and how deep this modern totalitarianism may entrench itself may depend on how terrifyingly normal it remains in the eyes of ordinary people. She says many ordinary ordinary individuals muster enough courage and self-awareness to find the line of good and evil dividing our own hearts naming and rejecting evil when we see it, but most of all, when we see it in ourselves. There's the key. That's it. Repudiating the delusion thrust upon us and demonstrating all its fallacies provides the masses with an alternate map, or an alternative map of reality, one that exchanges propaganda for truth. And if history lends prediction to the future, then our fate depends on the sum of our personal choices and moral conviction, and perhaps above all, our ability to to think. Well, that's the very reason why programs like this one exist. It's to give us that edge to, to inspire you to, to go ahead and be the odd person out if you have to be. And that doesn't mean you have to walk around, you know, with a pair of symbols crashing them and asking everybody to look at, look at me, look at me, I'm different. As, as a lot of people are finding out, you don't even have to do that. You'll still draw attention, and it's not the pleasant kind of attention. You know, anybody who has sneezed in public in the last year and a half, two years, already knows. People are primed to believe, hey, you're trying to murder people. <laughs> if you so much as cough or sneeze, they're sure that you're out there, you know, just trying to infect others. Come on, we know better. Come on, man, as our... As our brave and competent president would say, come on. <laughs> no. Somebody's got to be willing to draw that line. Um, you know, I, I, I don't want to say I'm proud to be one of those people, but I'm grateful that uh, I'm grateful that I've been one of those stubborn, you know, stick in the mud holdouts on, on many of these issues. And, and not because it just proves that I'm right and therefore I'm better than you, but it just seems like there's so much risk that comes along with, with some of the things that have been forced upon us here lately. I know I'm being a little bit vague, 
And I'm doing that deliberately because there is some very active censorship that takes place when a person speaks just a little too clearly. Another good sign that you have, you know, looming totalitarianism. Not only are we uh, not free to discuss certain things, but certain things will be actively suppressed if you get my drift. Now, that, that idea that, uh, you know, knowing that difference between good and evil or knowing where the line between good and evil stands, that's one of the big challenges. Once you figure out it runs right through my heart, you are on your way to becoming a truly good human being. Or at least you're aware that, uh, hey, I have the capacity to do evil. I recognize it. And I resolve not to give in to it. That's a good start. And you may say, well, I'm just one person. You know, what difference does it make? Hey, If you can offer, in the words of Albert J. Nock, one improved unit to society, that unit being you, that's still a net gain. There's one better person in the world. I think the biggest trouble we get into is when we start to to embrace the notion that not only am I a good person, but I am so good that I really have some kind of uh, natural uh, authority or I I should be looked at as someone who can tell other people what they need to do. In fact, I should be able to harness the power of the state to force people to do what I think is good because I'm just that good. It's pretty tough. And I see many of my my dear friends on the political right who, you know, stand for freedom. They they get teary-eyed at the national anthem. They they salute the flag. They recite the Pledge of Allegiance with pride in their hearts that uh, I'm so grateful to live in a free nation. But they'll still turn around and support totalitarian things when it suits them. The consistency that we've got to develop in our hearts and in our minds is that we do not initiate force against people whose behavior is peaceful, even if we disagree with them. You know, there there are people who want to, to live and to be left alone and will leave others alone to choose their own path to happiness. And there are people who want to control others. I suspect you're probably in that first group. But at the same time, no matter how committed we are to that ideal, we still could be prey to temptation. Now, there's another aspect of human nature, and this is when it comes to getting your mind around what's happening. This is one of the really difficult ones. And that is admitting when we are wrong. Why is it so hard to do that? I've got a great essay here from Ronald Bailey on what confirmation bias does to us individually and how it prevents us from learning what others may have to teach us. Yes, even people with whom you disagree. So when we come back from the break, I'm going to share with you an essay from Ronald Bailey about how uh, leaving your pride at the door is actually a good thing. This is published in uh, Reason.com. I'm just going to give you a taste of of this article here. He says, people who commit intentional murder, and only those people, should be executed. He says, that's a view I held for virtually all of my adult life. He says, I'm fully aware of the decades-long debate over the death penalty. I've made it my business over the years to read the many conflicting studies on the practice's efficacy, but I didn't care if executing convicted murders has a deterrent effect or not. I supported capital capital punishment because I wanted to do justice. Ronald Bailey says, I'm by nature a peaceable man. I've not hit anyone in anger since my teenage years, but my conception of what is just is informed by what I would want to do to a person who, beyond any shadow of a doubt, willfully killed my wife 
another family member, or a close friend, and that is inflict barbarous atonement for a barbaric act. He says one of the chief purposes of state-sanctioned execution has been to maintain social peace by forestalling blood feuds between people who would otherwise seek justice on their own. Okay, there's a good place for us to tap the brakes, and we will come back to this in just a few moments. But this is one. Look, I've struggled with this too. How do you admit that you're wrong? Isn't that uh, doesn't that sound like well, now I can no longer be trusted on anything, right? I've been proven to be wrong. If I say that, everybody's going to look at me like some dolt who doesn't have enough sense to come in out of the rain. Actually, it doesn't quite work that way. Some of the most trustworthy people you're going to meet are the people who can admit they were wrong and change their thinking when they encounter new truth. We need to be that kind of person. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, welcome back to the show. Sharing an article here from Ronald Bailey. This is from Reason.com. Why is it so hard to admit when you're wrong? And he's using a personal example, talking about how for most of his life, he has been a supporter of the death penalty. And I think a lot of us may have walked this path. I was once a very staunch supporter of the death penalty. And you know what? In recent years, I have had to walk that back because of some things that have been pointed out to me that I did not understand before. Now, this doesn't make me a pro-crime individual, but it, uh, it does mean that perhaps I wasn't looking at it from a more broad perspective. I'm not telling you, by the way, that you have to be against the death penalty, but um, trust me, this is going to be a bigger issue in the days ahead, uh, particularly for my friends listening in the state of Utah. This is an issue that uh, your state legislature is going to be taking up soon. And we will have Sharon Wright Weeks back on the program uh, to talk about why it's time to repeal and replace the death penalty in Utah. So hopefully that's not too triggering, but let's, let's go back to Ronald Bailey's article. Again, he says, look, I'm a peaceful man. I haven't hit anybody since my teenage years, but my, con- my conception of justice, he says, is that I, what I would want to do to a person who murdered my wife or a family member or a friend, which would basically be inflict barbarous atonement for a barbaric act. And he says, I wasn't alone in advocating death sentences for murderers. Gallup reports an average of 66% of Americans and a majority of parties favored the death penalty for convicted murderers during the first decade of this century. Now, interestingly enough, by last year, by 2020, that number had dropped to 55%. Gallup has been documenting a widening gap on the issue between Republicans and Democrats over the past two decades with a rock-solid 80% of Republicans still favoring the death penalty, even as Democratic support has dropped to under 40%. So despite that recent shift in the numbers, any rancor over the widening partisan divide with respect to the death penalty has been relatively mild compared to the growing estrangement over such issues as guns, affirmative action, climate change, and vaccinations. Research shows Americans increasingly align their opinions on hot-button issues along partisan lines and that they're likely to stick with those positions once committed. So today, if you are a member of one of the two major American political parties, you are statistically likely to dislike and distrust members of the other party. 
And while your affection for your own party has not grown in recent years, your distaste for the other party has intensified. You distrust news sources preferred by the other side. Its cult, its supporters seem uh, increasingly alien to you. Different, not just in partisan affiliation, but in social, cultural, economic, even racial characteristics. You may even consider them subhuman in some respects. But listen to this. He says you're also likely to be wrong about the characteristics of members of the other party, about what they actually believe, and even about their views of you. But you're trapped in a partisan prison with the psychological effects of confirmation bias. Being confronted with factual information that contradicts your previously held views does not change them, and it may even reinforce them. Vilification of the other party perversely leads partisans to behave in precisely the norm-violating and game-rigging ways that they fear their opponents will. It's It's a classic vicious cycle, he says, and it's accelerating. And it also tends to trap individuals within their pre-existing worldviews. Now, Ronald Bailey says, as a libertarian, conventional left-right partisan splits over many public policy issues are not particularly relevant to me. But even as my unease about the death penalty slowly mounted, I found in myself an incredibly powerful reluctance to publicly change my view and renounce prior commitments on the matter. Why is it so hard to admit you're wrong, especially in the realm of politics? He says social scientists have a term for the phenomenon described above. It's called effective polarization. So in the U.S. context, that would mean Democrats and Republicans growing tendency to dislike and distrust each other. Since 1978, he writes, the Northwestern University psychologist Eli Finkel and his colleagues have been trying to capture this phenomenon with a, with a thermometer. By asking Americans to describe their feelings on a scale from cold at zero degrees to warm, 100 degrees. They found that people feel quite warmly about their co-partisans, consistently reporting a balmy 70 to 75 degrees. In contrast, <clears throat> feelings towards opposing partisans have plummeted from a mild 48 degrees in the 1970s to a frosty 20 degrees today an emotional cold snap. Since 2012, and for the first time on record, out-of-party, out-party hate, rather, has been stronger than in-party love. They write in the October 30th issue, 2020, of Science. Now, the consequences of this big chill are apparent in other studies, notably the work of Louisiana State University political scientist Nathan Calmo and University of Maryland political scientist Liliana Mason. One of their more striking results is that 60 to 70% of both parties in a 2017-2018 survey said they thought the other party was a serious threat to the United States and its people. 40% of its respondents of respondents in both parties thought the other party was downright evil. In another poll, 15% of Republicans and 20% of Democrats agreed with the brutal sentiment that the country would be better off if large numbers of opposing partisans in the public today just died. And 18% of Democrats and 13% of Republicans said that violence would be justified if the opposing party won the 2020 presidential election. Now, Ronald Bailey says such studies suggest there's something substantially different about the virulence of partisan sentiment in recent years, and that trend isn't going away. Why do Americans increasingly think ill of their political opponents? 
Well, to some extent, people may be taking their cues from the political elites. Parsing the roll call votes of Democratic and Republican legislators reveals steeply increasing partisan polarization in Congress since the 1970s. In a 2018 Electoral Studies article on how party elite polarization affects voters, the Texas Tech political scientist Kevin K. Banda and University of Massachusetts Lowell political science uh, John Cluverius find that partisans respond to increasing levels of elite polarization by expressing higher levels of effective polarization. In other words, more negative evaluations of the opposing party relative to their own. Now, the Emory University political scientists uh, Stephen Webster and Alan Abramowitz have been tracking the growing mutual dislike of between or of Democratic and Republican uh, partisans, and they've noted that the growing ideological distance between the Republican and Democratic Party elites may be contributing to broader political or partisan polarization, rather. In addition, partisan affiliation used to be much less correlated to other social and political divisions. Mason and the Louisiana State University political scientist uh, Nicholas Davis have studied survey data that YouGov, Polymetrics, and the American National Election Studies collected between 1948 and 2012. In a 2015 working paper, the two scholars report, quote, the stronger and more strongly aligned our religious, racial, and partisan identities, the more neatly our parties correspond to our ideological identities. This increased ideological consistency corresponds to an increase in partisan bias and intolerance across the electorate, end quote. So even with the growing ideological split, Partisans dramatically overestimate the substantive differences between members of the two parties. Now, there's quite a bit more to this article. This is a pretty lengthy essay. But if you want to understand, why do I feel the way I do towards those who are not on my side of the, the um, you know, of, of a particular issue? In his case, he talks about the death penalty. Maybe it's time to take a closer look at how confirmation bias is at work in your own life. And trust me, it is in all of our lives. I get it too. I thrill when I find an article, hey, that backs up what I've already said or what I believe. See? <laughs> I, you know, I try not to, to, to get too high on the dopamine release of, uh, of uh, having, having found somebody who agrees. But that doesn't mean it's going to be obvious to everybody else. So here are my two recommendations. You want to, to guard yourself against uh, confirmation bias, guard yourself against uh, that, that getting swole up with pride and, I can't be wrong. You know, it's, it's sad when people go down that path where they get so puffed up and so full of themselves, they just simply cannot be wrong. These are my recommendations. Number one, focus on building your understanding. In other words, uh, instead of insisting everybody else see what's plainly in front of them, make sure that you see plainly what's in front of you. That's the first recommendation. You have to be the one to do your own homework and own your own worldview. The fact that you're listening to this show tells me you're probably on that path already. Here's the second thing. When you have the opportunity to speak the truth, no matter the person or group that you're speaking that truth to, speak the truth with love. Plant seeds. Let other people come to the truth at their own pace. And do not stop loving them for one second. This 
is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, welcome back to the show. Just want to give a quick plug here for GovernYourIncome.com. What could that possibly mean? Govern your income. Well, a lot of folks who, uh, unfortunately, have been let go from jobs or pushed out of jobs because of uh, certain mandates that have come along, uh, they've discovered that, wow, maybe my job wasn't as secure as I wanted. So if you've been looking for alternatives, if you have thought, you know, I'd really like to work for myself, I'm just not sure how to go about getting started, maybe you should go to GovernYourIncome.com and consider the opportunity that's laid out there. This is not for everybody. Not everybody would want to be a day trader in the the current, uh, let's try this again, the foreign currency exchange markets, the Forex markets. GovernYourIncome.com is a company that will train you, and I mean thoroughly train you, to be a day trader in the Forex markets. And you can make some very, very good money. Best of all, you can work from wherever you have an internet signal very great opportunity for the right person. Click on the link I provide in my show notes and hopefully you'll be very pleasantly surprised to say, hey, this is exactly what I'm looking for. So I've mentioned now that, uh, you know, courts have been striking down the Biden vaccine mandates, three of them now, three court decisions that have come out. And uh, now, curiously, we're starting to see a number of mega corporations backing quickly away because they're finding themselves... uh, not uh, not backed by the government, even though the president's saying, oh, go ahead, you know, and, you know, implement these anyway. Why is that going? Why are the mega corporations backing away and abandoning vax mandates? Daniel McAdams from the Ron Paul Institute has an excellent article on this. He And this was written last week and published last week. So he says, this week's nationwide annihilation of Biden's federal contractor vaccine mandate at the hands of Georgia federal judge R. Stan Baker has resulted in a landslide retreat of cowardly mega corporations from their so confident bullying of American workers. Biden's illegal gamble, the nationwide federal contractor vaccine mandate, has, like his previous Medicare mandate and OSHA, if you have 100 workers, mandatory vax mandate, been ripped to shreds early on in the courts. Now, he says Biden's mandates have always been a bullying gamble, an admission that they knew they were engaging in illegal acts, but they would continue to use the non-significant, non-insignificant, not insignificant weapons of the executive branch to blast as much harm as possible until the court stepped in and noted the obvious. You can't do this. Cynics, and he says, and I sympathize, will say, well, the courts could have ruled either way, so don't get too excited. Well, that's the lesson of the past two years. There's nothing below us as we look down. It takes our breath away. We now understand that our civilization has been built on a pile of sand. And any determined entity could tunnel under us as we're distracted by the human necessities of providing for our families or living our finite lives as best as possible. Once you see that, he says, this horrible reality cannot be unseen. Now, previously, we viewed our rulers, from dog catcher to president, as malevolent, but for the most part at a distance. We never thought they would reach out with their gradually but steadily acquired iron fist and squeeze the oxygen from our lungs, 
take a shot or starve. Now, the Hungarians in 1918 similarly were shocked that living somewhat silently among them were aliens who would activate themselves at the exact most fertile moment and literally upend their sonambulant, sonambulant state, imposing mandates on their society that included mobile gallows, a crude earlier form of the forced vax. Daniel McAdams says, with the welcome disintegration of this evil government decree via Judge Baker's ruling that the contractor mandate is illegal, one by one, the megacorporations also see their position as shifting to the untenable. So they're bailing out as fast as possible. Some 83,000 Florida health care workers no longer face being kicked to the street by U.S. government-sponsored terrorism. Until this week, dutifully enforced by the free market prostitutes in bed with the state. That's harsh, but he's right. Sorry, maybe there, maybe there's a gentler way to say that, but I don't disagree with his characterization of, of what these mega corporations have been doing. As hero Alex Berenson has reported Thursday, mega corporations in the U.S. are suddenly looking under themselves and they're finding that they are alone. No more government guns aimed at the powerless, at least for the time being. General Electric, Electric rather, 3M, Verizon, and Oracle have in the past few days hedged their bets and snuck out of bed with the U.S. government. No more VAX requirements. Now, we're talking about a large group of people no longer bound by the Brotherhood of the Needle. And Daniel McAdams says, hey, we are winning this for now. We should pause to drink it in. But at the same time, he says, we must also look at what has rotted in our civilization that would allow such a force to upend us, to unleash this iron fist once hidden in a velvet glove. He says, life will never be the same knowing what these people have done to us. And they must never be allowed to forget it. That's pretty potent stuff. And I know for some people, it's got to sound just a little bit radical. Well, you know, look at you railing against these companies. But ask yourself, when in, when in history have the people who've had to use force to try to impose something on other people been on the right side? I know someone will say, well, Brian, wasn't slavery done away with by force? No, actually, <laughs> not always. Um, you know, there, some people will point to the war between the states and America and say, well, it was force that, that brought an end to that. But that's not really what that war was about. Lincoln was much more concerned about compelling those disobedient states that broke away from the Union. He wanted them to stay under the control of the federal government. So he was using force to keep them under his control. And I agree with Lysander Spooner, who says, you know, what happened there was, yeah, some slaves were, were freed, but a whole bunch of new slaves were created, slaves to a government that they did not want. So let's not uh, lose, lose sight of what was really at stake here. This is not defending slavery in any way. It's just pointing out that the court historians write the history books, so it's, it's natural to, to understand that the way that history is portrayed in most of those, those books, uh, particularly, particularly textbooks, is going to be favorable to whatever regime prevails. Whoever writes the checks, you know, for the textbooks really is going to try to make sure that they're looking good. Or at least the people who write the books and collect those checks are going to make sure that the, the people in power are, are favorably portrayed in what they're saying. 
how did we get there? How did we get to the point that people are, are willing to, to, to make deals with government like this, to, to where corporations will do the dirty work that government reluctantly admits, okay, we don't have constitutional authority to do this, but we can get these employers to do it for us. I mean, how many lives have been upended? How many people have lost jobs? How many people have been threatened and and felt the, the unnecessary stress because of this? There's an even more sinister aspect, and I guess I'll go there for a moment. How many people have gone ahead and taken the shot, received the jab against their will? Okay, my daughter's one of them. She wanted to continue her education in nursing. She's, uh, she's making serious progress on becoming a registered nurse. But that was a wall that they pushed her up against and said, you have to do this or else. And so reluctantly she did. And I'm not saying this to, to condemn people who have taken the vaccine, but as you see some of the stories starting to come out, particularly the one that, that really grabs me is, why are we seeing so many young people, as in uh, like sports uh, figures collapsing and sometimes dying from heart problems that we're assured in no way is that associated with the vaccine and that in no way reflects you know you know what the vast majority of people have experienced but see we're still learning what some of these side effects are we're still learning what some of the the consequences may be not to mention if you really want to come back to just the the basic baseline what is government supposed to do it's not supposed to force you to make medical decisions against your informed consent. So you may think, well, I'm going to I'm just going to, you know, hunker down here until till this uh, unpleasantness has blown over and hopefully, you know, the right side will win. You don't really have that option anymore. And people who choose to stand up for their personal autonomy and refuse to be bullied and pushed into things that they don't want to do, you're going to pay a price. Okay, there is no way to avoid the pain of standing for something. You got to be willing to suffer for your beliefs. God bless the people who are willing to do so for the example that they set and for the courage that they send out to the people around them who see that it can be done, even if it comes at a bit of a cost. This is The Brian Hyde Show. A trusted voice of truth and light. God gave me a gift. I shovel well. I shovel very well. And a rally point for those who've accepted the reality that they are not sheep. We've got a blind date with destiny. And it looks like she's ordered the lobster. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Well, hello there and welcome to the show. My goal here is not to tell you what to think, nor is it to tell you that you're bad if you disagree with me, because you're perfectly uh, capable of disagreeing with me and still being a wonderful person. We don't have to see eye to eye. But that's not what you've been hearing from <laughs> from many of your favorite voices out there. No, it's, it's, it's a crazy world we live in, but the bottom line is it's never been more important for the average person, you and me, to think clearly, 
and independently about the world around us so that we can better recognize when, when someone is trying to shepherd us in a direction that actually goes against our best interests. My goal is to get you asking the right questions to where you can chart your course with confidence rather than wait for someone to lead you around by the nose. So with that in mind, let's dive right in. Our program is brought to you by great sponsors like the Heather Turner team at Patriot Home Mortgage, also HSL Ammo, Sewing and Quilting Center, GovernYourIncome.com. By the way, HSL Ammo, I'm just going to mention this because Christmas is coming up. Um, They've got some great swag. So if you want to support a really great little ammo company and, uh, and, you know, give them, give them a little bit of a public shout-out, that's a great way to do it. Also, lifesavingfood.com, MonticelloCollege.org. These are some of the sponsors who make it possible for me to do what I do on a daily basis. So let's start with some good news. I'm, I'm happy to tell you that uh, the hardships of the pandemic have actually caused problem solvers to think more creatively. You know, when you don't have an option but to find a solution, we're just going to have to find something. I think of Apollo 13, that great line uttered by uh, said Ed Harris, you know, failure is not an option. So entrepreneurs have actually taken that tone and saying, okay, what can we do in spite of the fact that things have changed all around us? J.D. Tusil from Reason.com reports that entrepreneurship is on the rise despite COVID-19. Apparently, necessity spells opportunity for those who have the eyes to see. He says, to the list of unpredictable outcomes of the pandemic and related policy-based rather disruptions of American life, add a surge in business startups. After years of declining entrepreneurship, a previously risk-averse population appears to have peered open-eyed at a society gone off the rails, despite its hopes, and committed to embracing the resulting opportunities. So let's back that up with some numbers. Despite a health catastrophe and one of the worst economic downturns in modern history, startup business activity grew in the United States last year. Business startups grew from 3.5 million in 2019 to 4.4 million in 2020. That's a 24% increase, according to the Peterson Institute for International Economics. That surge has continued since then. According to the Census Bureau, startups for November 2021 were up 8.9% over November 2020. And business launches for that month were already up 35% from the previous year. Now, J.D. Tusil says that's a lot of entrepreneurial activity for a country in which, not too long ago, economists worried about Americans' loss of interest in working for themselves. Wim Nade of the Maastricht Economic and Social Research Institute on Innovation and Technology at United Nations University wrote back in October of 2019, no matter what measure of entrepreneurship you use, the underlying trend is the same, downward. Now, this was while a certain coronavirus lurked in the wings. Wim Nade said, for instance, uh, measured as the ratio of new firms, those younger than one year, to total firms, Then entrepreneurship in the U.S. declined by around 50% between 1978 and 2011. In terms of the share of young firms, those that are younger than five years, entrepreneurship declined from 47% in the late 1980s to 39% in 2006. 
Now, J.D. Tusil says, economists argue over the reasons for the decline, citing causes including aging populations and zombie firms that discourage competition by dominating markets through government favor rather than efficiency. Of course, it's worth asking business owners what hurdles they encounter, and they'll often point to red tape. J.D. Tusil actually wrote back in 2015, last month, respondents to an annual National Federation of Independent Business survey told the organization the single most important problem they faced involved government regulations and red tape. In July, regulatory burdens ranked among the three most significant challenges for future growth and survival of your business, named by respondents to a similar Small Business Association survey. Now, to this, you might add a population that's grown risk-averse and comfortable in a remarkably prosperous society that satisfies many people's desires with minimal effort. Tyler Cowen wrote in his 2017 book, The Complacent Class, these days Americans are less likely to switch jobs, less likely to move around the country, and on a given day, less likely to go outside the house at all. For instance, the interstate migration rate has fallen 51% below its 1948 to 1971 average and has been falling steadily since the 1980s. There's been a decline in the number of startups as a percentage of business activity since the 1990s. End quote. Now, J.D. Tusil says, this, of course, is where things get grim. The arrival of COVID-19 and government-imposed lockdowns, business closures, and social distancing disrupted economic activity and human lives. People who were perfectly comfortable in salaried jobs suddenly found themselves wondering about the source of their next paycheck. The competent class became the desperate class. Now, many of these new entrepreneurs are self-employed and were likely laid off and forced into entrepreneurship by necessity. That's according to Simeon Jankov and Eva Yuen Zhang, who noticed that when they visited the burst of entrepreneurship back in May of this year. The authors calculate that firm births may have surpassed firm deaths during the pandemic. I think that speaks to the resilience of, of the American people, though. That's... I. That's one thing that, uh, that we are very good at doing is, you know, okay, this is the hand that life has dealt us. Let's, let's play it out and find a way to make it work. Data from the Kauffman Foundation indicates the percentage of new entrepreneurs who created a business by choice instead of necessity dropped from 86.86% in 2019 to 69.75% last year. Many people happy to work for someone else were pushed into starting a business by pandemic-era chaos. But Tusil says a lot of those people seem to have discovered that they actually like working for themselves. And that may be causing a cultural shift. At the end of November, the Wall Street Journal reported at least part of the great resignation phenomenon of Americans quitting jobs involved people starting businesses. Now, the move helps to explain the ongoing shakeup in the world of work with more people looking for flexibility anxious about COVID exposure, upset about vaccine mandates, or simply disenchanted with pre-pandemic office life. That's according to the Wall Street Journal's Josh Mitchell and Catherine Dill. Tusil says you add to pandemic policies and the grind of institutional life the disengagement some workers feel from politicized employers. Economist Arnold Kling observes, if you work for a company that engages in political gestures that you think are silly, why care? This is especially in response to much of the public's dismissive reaction to woke takeovers of employers. You work remotely, you have your own side project that you're passionate about. 
and that side project may be launching a business from the home office in which you work anyway. Hayden Brown, chief executive of Upwork, which connects freelancers with clients, told the Wall Street Journal a new type of career path has emerged. With half of the Gen Z, that's ages 18 to 22 talent pool, actually choosing to start their careers in freelance rather than full-time employment. Now, that's not to say, though, that the current surge in entrepreneurship is a permanent change. Even if people maintain their new disdain for institutional workplaces, lingering pandemic mandates, and politicized employers, the challenges to which small businesses have pointed for years remain daunting. The barriers haven't gone away, says Victor Huang of Right to Start, which advocates for entrepreneurs. They include access to capital, government fees, licensing requirements, and those barriers are pervasive, formidable, and costly. What's more is they inhibit the startup growth that would enable the U.S. economy to thrive. J.D. Tusil says those hurdles need to be cleared away before we can be confident that Americans will retain their renewed interest in escaping ossified, politicized employers so they can seize opportunity and take charge of their own fates. I totally understand why some people are reluctant to to step out there onto that uh, entrepreneurship plank and walk off the end of it, because you don't know where your feet going to land. What if I fail? What if it doesn't work? I've been there myself. But I went ahead and took that blind step into the dark, and you know what? There is a bit of discomfort that comes with realizing, okay, that steady paycheck is not going to be there. You're going to have to pay the rent every day on your success. But there's a freedom that comes with it that lifts you from these mandates and lifts you from the burden of what somebody else thinks is best. And that turns out to be a pretty priceless thing after all. So I highly recommend it. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, welcome back to the show. If you're one of the thousands of people who are relocating to the Intermountain West right now, you're getting to see firsthand what a really hot real estate market looks like. Here's what that means. When you find the home of your dreams, your financing has to be squared away right now. And this is where the Heather Turner team at Patriot Home Mortgage in St. George, Utah comes in. If you are moving, for instance, anywhere in the state of Utah, these are the folks you want to get a hold of. Heather's the one you want on your side to make things happen when time is of the essence. She brings decades of experience in the lending industry with impeccable character and it's this is this is where you need to go from VA loans to traditional loans to reverse mortgages. Contact the Heather Turner team at Patriot Home Mortgage by calling 435-703-4522. Heather's NMLS ID is 715386. Patriot Home Mortgage is an equal housing opportunity lender. There's even a convenient email link in today's show notes if you want to reach out to her directly. So you're hearing more talk these days about uh, the uh, metaverse. As it is, I spend way more time online than I would like. And and I find myself particularly with social media, I think we can safely say it's an addiction. And I'm certainly not alone with this, but I'm spending way more time online than I would like to spend. But 
I still am reluctant to embrace the idea of, oh, but the metaverse is where, where we're going to really see things go. And I think Mark Zuckerberg is, is the one who's, who's really been pushing this of late. Have you ever seen the movie Ready Player One? You know, this is, this is the kind of, of thing that, that we're talking about. I got a great article here from Kent McManigal that warns the growing metaverse is not a reasonable substitute for the real world. He says the real world is better than metaverse. He says, have you been hearing about the metaverse? What is it? Well, it's virtual reality taken to another level, like experiencing the Internet as though it's the world you live in, to see and hear it all around you as if it's physically real. He says, imagine the best video game you've ever seen. But so much better, you have a hard time believing your character isn't actually you doing all the things your character's doing, surrounded by other people's characters experiencing the same. But he says it's not just about playing games, though. Business, social groups, education, and other features of the real world would be there, too. Anything from the real world or anything someone can imagine would be present or could be present in the metaverse. To which Kent McManigal says, I can see limitless benefits and limitless downsides. Some think it may replace reality for most people when the technology gets good enough. It's like, you know, it's like voluntarily marching into the matrix, I guess. People might choose to spend all their time in the metaverse instead of the real world. He says, when I see those obsessed with online gaming or other escapism, I think it's possible. I see the attraction. You could avoid your boring, unpleasant reality. You could be the superhero. You could experience things and places you could never experience in real life. You could form relationships and even make money. Yes, you'll still need money to keep your meat body alive and your internet bill paid, or you'll lose your connection to the metaverse, which will probably feel like death. Will this just be another thing people become addicted to? Ken McManigal says, yes. Anything enjoyable is addictive. And things that can be specifically tailored to be addictive, such as the metaverse, will be especially addictive to those who are vulnerable to addiction. In fact, he says, I'm guessing that's somewhere between 10 and 40% of people when you include everything people already get addicted to. For something like the metaverse, that percentage might even be higher. But listen to his response. Kent McManigal says, look, I prefer the real world with all its warts and scars because it's real. Unless we already exist in a simulated reality, which doesn't change anything important to this discussion. He says, I can imagine how age or disability might make me reconsider, though. So if you don't get pulled in, will the metaverse remove a lot of excess people from your daily life? Well, McManigal says it might feel like the population of the world has plummeted when so many people are staying plugged in all day. But he says maybe the person who avoids the metaverse will end up being king of the real world. So there's a question that, that pops into my mind here and one that I would encourage you to, to think about and you answer this the way you want to answer it, but what would you choose? Would you choose to, to live more online or would you choose the real world? I think I know what my answer would be. But then again, this is, this is a show that is encouraging people stay tethered to reality. And not everybody wants to. 
I get it. The world can be a scary place. There's a lot of stuff going on right now that, uh, you know, there's not just one crisis. There are numerous overlapping crises, and they all seem to be intensifying. And that's scary, and it causes us uncertainty. Maybe a nice little escape would be great. But I'm hoping that at some level you recognize that the world that we were born into isn't just something we're supposed to just gut out and, you know, survive and endure. You know, it's it's a place that we were born into because there's something each of us personally must do. I'm talking about a sense of personal mission, and I'll grant you, this is going to make some people uncomfortable. So if, if you don't want to bear with the discomfort, this is the time to bow out. But hear me out on this. There was a time in my life where I was content just to, you know, to play the game, follow the script. Okay, you get a good job, you stick with it, you know, you build your way up the corporate ladder, or you, you, you climb, you get the titles, you get the, the uh, pay stubs that show, look, I'm successful. Drive something that shows you're successful. Buy a home that shows you're successful. Oh, yeah, that's what life is about. And I know I'm, I'm painting the thumbnail sketch here, but, uh, but a lot of people really buy into that dream. The purpose of life is to work, to buy things, and, you know, eventually retire and then play with your toys until your time runs out. But what if you and I were born, each of us with a very unique purpose and mission that's ours alone? Because just like there are no two snowflakes alike, there are no two people exactly alike. And I think that's by design. I believe our creator actually, you know, this, this is part of the genius of creation. There are no two people exactly the same. And with that in mind, if, if you can get your mind around the concept of, you know, is there a creator? Am I, is, there, is there someone who, who uh, brought me into existence? Would it not stand to reason that that creator might have a purpose for you? Not as a plaything, not as like your creator's playing with you like some kind of toy. And here's the game we're going to play. But something that, a, a mission that is yours alone, designed to bring out the very best in you and to bring you to your full potential. Because like I say, there was a time in my life where I was content to, to not even consider such things. And then one day I was introduced to the idea, but what if, what if you do have a purpose? And it rocked my world. It shocked me. In fact, I, I was angry with the person who taught me that because that moment my eyes came open and I realized I, I don't think I can shut my eyes again. It's been almost 20 years. But that's when I started to try to live with greater purpose to figure out what is it that I could be doing? What is uniquely my mission? And I've rubbed shoulders with a lot of people who've gone through this experience themselves. And I don't want to lock you into, well, there's only one thing and one thing only you can do. But I can promise you that if you are looking to live with purpose, you got to do that living in the real world. If you want to make a difference in some way that is uniquely yours to carry out, it's not going to take place strictly in the metaverse or strictly online. It's got to be the kind of thing that you go into the real world, which means you're going to have to face risk. You're going to have to face rejection. You're going to face a lot of obstacles. But here's the kicker. You will grow 
and you will develop from every single hardship and obstacle that you face. And your success is going to be measured in the lives you impact rather than a number in your bank account. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, welcome back to the show. Hey, I want to recommend my show notes to anybody who is willing to take a deeper dive into any of the topics that I cover on a given day. I specifically go after information sources and commentators who have shown themselves to be principled. And this doesn't mean I agree with everything they say, and you should too. Sometimes I like the ones that challenge my thinking. But uh, but ultimately, you are the one who gets to make up your mind what you do with that information. But if you're looking for a great source of information to, to take a deeper dive into these subjects, please subscribe to my show notes. Just visit my website, thebrianhideshow.com. Click on the subscribe button. I'll email you a copy of my show notes every day with links to those various articles. And most of these articles have many links within themselves that will take you uh, further down the rabbit hole to, to where you can acquire as much or as little knowledge as you wish. So here's an interesting thought. What do you get when you mix science with politics? Well, the answer is more politics. And no, it's not a punchline. Robert Arvey has a great article on ZeroHedge.com about the pol- politicization of science and how it is undermining the public's trust in both politics as well as science. Now, this is uh, authored by Robert Arvey in AmericanThinker.com. He says, I just finished reading an article on the Big Think website titled, When Science Mixes with Politics, All We Get is Politics. This is by Professor Marcelo Gleiser, theoretical physicist, Dartmouth College. Robert Arvey says, I mistakenly thought that the commentary would decry the misuse of science by politicians, but no. Instead, it decries the mistrust that we, the unwashed masses, have developed for the science establishment in recent years. Unwittingly, the eminent professor gives us yet more reasons to regard science insiders with skepticism. He does what so many of his colleagues do, which is to equate science itself with the institutions that purport to advance science. So to question politicized scientists, then, is supposedly unscientific. Now, he says, to illustrate my personal contact with science bias, I sent an email on, I refer to an email, rather, that I sent on February 3rd, 2021, to NASA regarding a brief article it had posted at the space.com website. Here's the letter with punctuations slightly adjusted. Space.com has been a credible source of information because it does not reveal political bias. The story at Space Force has Biden's full support, White House says, is a sad exception. It was good coverage until it said it shouldn't come as a huge surprise that Saki didn't have, that's the press secretary, Saki, didn't have a wealth of Space Force information and ideas immediately to hand yesterday. The Biden administration is dealing with a number of pressing issues as it gets up and running, especially the ongoing coronavirus pandemic. So space issues likely aren't a big priority at the moment. Now, making wordy excuses for the press rep's lack of knowledge by citing a number of pressing issues is disingenuous. All administrations have serious pressing issues initially. 
And with Jen Psaki, even uh, supporters of the new administration have ridiculed Psaki's pronounced lack of preparedness, citing her frequent circle back phrase. It would have been more forthright to simply say nothing at all about the press rep, or at most simply saying something like, Saki didn't have the Space Force information at the time of the press conference. That would have been unbiased, factual, and would not have sounded patronizing. I hope that you are self-aware enough to recognize your own bias and to keep it from tainting your otherwise excellent coverage in the future. Obesience does not become you. Signed, Robert Arve. Now he says, since then I have not, I have not seen another example of such blatant politicization on the NASA website. Now, he says, whether my email had anything to do with that, I'll probably never know. But censorship of actual science has been heavy-handed, both by Democrats and by their big tech acolytes. Epidemiologists, virologists, and physicians who do not toe the party line regarding COVID have been intimidated and silenced. Science that cannot be openly questioned is not science, since the heart and soul of science is to scrutinize every claim from every angle. Robert Arve says, if we're told that we must, if we are to be told that we must follow the science, then scientists must explain to us the inductive reasoning that was applied to exclude members of Congress, their staffs, and the COVID, and, and their staffs rather, from the COVID restrictions they imposed on the rest of us. Just as an aside to you, the listener, you were aware of this, right? Yeah. Congress and their staff are exempt from all the mandates that are being placed and the restrictions that have been placed on us. Shouldn't that at least make you wonder, why Why is that? Robert Arvey says, if scientists are to decry those who doubt their word, then they must equally decry the policy of distributing unvaccinated, untested, illegal aliens to every state while denying entry to legal travelers. To decry only the skeptics while ignoring the egregious anti-science of many politicians does nothing to engender trust in the institutions of science. In fact, it does the opposite. Yes, Professor, mixing science with politics does indeed result in only politics. Robert Arve says, uh, thank you for being an example of that. Ooh, that one's going to leave a mark, but he's not wrong. Just, I guess, another, another reason to be cautious before, you know, you start screaming about the science. The science! Embrace it! Shifting gears. Civil asset forfeiture is one of the clearest possible indicators we have that justice is being twisted into something that primarily serves the interest of the state more so than the people. Even Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez has recently uh, stumbled into this, and and believe it or not, she's come down on the, the freedom side of the issue when it comes to civil asset forfeiture. Got a great story here from Patrick Carroll. This is from the American Institute for Economic Research about a man who gets back $30,000 the government stole from him, although it was 11 months after drug agents seized his money without cause. We've actually talked about this this on the program before. But for those hearing about it for the first time, this is uh, Patrick Carroll's take on what happened to Kermit Warren and his son Leo. The two of them lost their hotel jobs amid 2020 as a result of COVID-related layoffs. And things were not looking great for them. Though they had some money saved, they needed to find new jobs quickly in their hometown of New Orleans before their money ran out. Now, fortunately, Kermit had a longtime side gig of hauling scrap metal, and they decided to turn that into a full-time father-son enterprise. 
To scale up their new venture, they needed a bigger truck, and they eventually connected with a seller in Columbus, Ohio. So in November of 2020, they booked a flight to Columbus, planning to drive the truck back after buying it. Now, Kermit was carrying roughly $30,000 in cash, his life savings, since he was planning to use the cash to buy the truck. Well, unfortunately, that trip didn't go exactly as planned. First, since they were inexperienced travelers, they mistakenly flew to Cleveland. Then, after the two-hour drive to the seller's lot in Columbus, they found the lot was closed with no motels in the area and no car. They had to spend the night outdoors in the cold. Early the next morning, they were able to look at the truck, but they realized it was too big for their needs. So they went to the Columbus airport and booked flights back to New Orleans. Now, the TSA raised some eyebrows when they discovered Kermit's cash, but they let him go without any hassle. Kermit and Leo proceeded to their their gate and waited for their flight to board. That's when agents from the Drug Enforcement Administration, or DEA, showed up, having been tipped off by the TSA. Suspicious of drug trafficking, the DEA began questioning Kermit about the cash. Kermit and Leo tried to offer evidence of their truck purchasing plans, but the agents were becoming increasingly hostile and refused to review the evidence. Panicking, Kermit lied by telling the agents he was a former cop, hoping that would deter them. However, with more questioning, he quickly admitted the truth and in hindsight realized his lie was a mistake and a lapse in judgment. But even more suspicious after the lie, the DEA took all of Kermit's money despite having no evidence the cash was connected to criminal activity. Kermit and Leo then returned home with no truck and no cash. Six months later, the government filed a civil forfeiture complaint in, in federal court, which would let, them, would let the government keep the cash permanently because they suspected the money was involved in a drug crime. Though Kermit was never charged with a crime, let alone convicted, now the burden was on him to prove his innocence if he ever wanted to get his money back. Now, before I go any further, I just want to ask you, put yourself in his shoes. Yeah, there's, you know, you can say, well, he was a dummy. You know, he did all this stuff wrong and I wouldn't have done it that way. And that's fine. But let's not forget the basic facts. And that is this guy had his cash legally acquired. There was no probable cause other than the fact that he had cash that uh, that would cause government to come swooping in and say, we need to take that away because we're pretty sure that's involved in a crime. Proper government always would be the one to prove the, to have that burden of proof that something had taken place. But they didn't. So armed men took his money from him, kept it, and then started going through the legal motions to claim it as their own. It's the first part that concerns me. Armed men coerced him into giving him their money against his will. What does that sound like to you? Oh, I know, they were flashing costume jewelry, and they may have even been wearing a costume themselves. But it sure sounds a lot like common robbery to me. We'll be back in just a moment. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, welcome back to the show. Sharing this article from the American Institute for Economic Research. This is an article by Patrick Carroll, and it's the sobering story of a man who got back $30,000 stolen from him 
11 months uh, after the agents who seized it without cause. These were drug enforcement agents who seized it. So Kermit was never charged with a crime. His money was taken. The burden was placed on him. Now you prove that you got this money legitimately if you ever want to get your money back. Well, thank heavens there are groups like the, and organizations like the Institute for Justice, which agreed to represent Kermit back in August of this year, and they documented the legitimate purpose of his trip. Finally, on October 29th, the Institute for Justice announced that prosecutors had agreed to dismiss the case with prejudice, meaning permanently. And after 11 months, Kermit will finally be getting his money back. Now, Kermit said, look, I'm relieved that I finally get my hard-earned savings back after a year of suffering. But he says, what happened to me was wrong. The officers and prosecutors treated me like a criminal when all I was trying to do was improve my business and my life. For a year, they've left me struggling to survive a pandemic and a hurricane without my savings. Institute for Justice uh, senior attorney Dan Albin also commented on the good news. We're relieved that Kermit's getting his hard-earned money back, but it's outrageous that he was left destitute for an entire year for no good reason due to the callous, profit-driven actions of the DEA and federal prosecutors. He said Kermit's case highlights how the federal government abuses civil forfeiture. It seizes cash on the flimsiest of pretexts, traveling with cash at an airport, and effectively forces people to prove their own innocence to get their money back. And even in a best-case scenario, it can take over a year for them to get their property back. End quote. Now, sadly, Kermit's experience is not uncommon. Every year, thousands of Americans have their cash and other assets seized through civil forfeiture. And many never get their money and property back. And what's more, forfeiture has been increasing in recent years. In 2001, civil and criminal forfeitures brought in a combined $473 million in revenue. But in recent years, that number has consistently been over $2 billion, largely driven by an increase in civil forfeitures. And airports seem to be particularly lucrative locations for this practice, as Kermit's story highlights. In fact, an investigation by USA Today found DEA units in 15 of the nation's busiest airports seized over $209 million in cash from at least 5,200 drug suspects between between 2006 and 2016. But while the experience offered by this practice may be alluring, the reality is that civil forfeiture is fundamentally unjust and has no place in a free society. For one, most of the crimes that are targeted with this practice, like drug trafficking, shouldn't even be considered crimes in the first place. Second, this practice effectively turns the presumption of innocence on its head, forcing people to prove that they did nothing wrong if they ever want to get their property back. And third, civil forfeiture encourages policing for profit, whereby the legal system is used to raise revenue for police agencies rather than fight crime. It's a great example of legal plunder. And Patrick Carroll points out in his 1850 treatise, The Law, Frederick Bastiat commented on these kinds of practices, and he noted in particular the irony that while the law is supposed to uphold property rights, it's often used to violate them. Bastiat said, under the pretense of organization, regulation, protection, or encouragement, the law takes property from one person and gives it to another. Now, Bastiat called this practice legal plunder, since essentially it's a form of theft authorized by law. But how is this legal plunder to be identified, Bastiat continued? Quite simply, see if the law takes from some persons what belongs to them 
and gives it to other persons to whom it does not belong. See if the law benefits one citizen at the expense of another by doing what the citizen himself cannot do without committing a crime. Patrick Carroll says the point is government agents should have no more rights than any other citizen. If they forcibly take money or property that isn't theirs, they have committed theft. And theft doesn't become okay just because it's done by someone with a badge and uniform. Sadly, the laws that currently exist endorse this double standard on morality. Government agents are allowed to steal with impunity, even though ordinary citizens would be rightly prosecuted for the same actions. As a result, the world we live in is a world of precarious property rights, one where innocent people like Kermit Warren are regularly victimized by law enforcement agents. And Patrick Carroll says it's a harsh reminder of just how far we still have to go in the fight to defend civil liberties. Hopefully it's something that never affects you, but you should have awareness of this. All right, final article here. I love Lenore Skenazy. And here's a question that she poses. Why aren't kids outside anymore? She says the decline in children playing outdoors can actually be traced directly to the idea that children are in danger at all times, and if you allow them any freedom, that's tantamount to neglect. So Lenore Skenazy says, what's a good age to let kids walk to the park and play without an adult? That's the simple, straightforward question someone posted this week on Raising Independent Kids, a Facebook group that she runs as president of a nonprofit promoting childhood independence. Now, the answers are very kind and non-judgmental, all of them. No one's screaming, never let your children play outside without an adult, you lazy, crazy parent. But she says it's striking nonetheless because the age that most people seem to agree with is 7 or 8 or even less controversially, 9 or 10. Whereas she says, my stay-at-home mom let me walk to school solo at age 5. And she wasn't an outlier. It was normal for kids to walk to kindergarten. In other words, the age at which we trust our kids to do something basic and fun on their own has almost doubled in a generation or two. Now imagine if in that same space of time, kids went from graduating high school at age 18 to instead 36. What if the average age Americans got married went from 25 to 50? I mean, we're talking a really big leap in what's now considered normal and prudent when it comes to a basic childhood activity, going outside unsupervised to play. And nine is young compared to the results of a study in Britain that found that while today's parents were allowed out at age nine, they don't let their own kids out till they're 11. She says people generally think these higher ages came about because crime has gone up so much in the intervening years. But if you search for a chart of crime rates from 1960 to 2020, you'll see that there were 5.1 murders per 100,000 in 1960 and 5.0 in 2019. Hmm. The rates have climbed a little bit during the coronavirus pandemic, but they're nothing like the rates in the early 1990s, which consistently registered more than nine murders per 100,000 people. So what has happened to childhood isn't in response to reality. After all, as crime went down, fear went up. What happened is a new belief took hold. And it's the belief that all children are in danger all the time, so allowing them any freedom is akin to neglect. 
on the Facebook page, you can see parents struggling to stay sanguine. They, they let their elementary age kids go outside with a friend or a phone or a sibling. In other words, the parent is mentally preparing for a danger that can be deflected by strength in numbers or electronic supervision. She says, that's what I mean when I talk about a totally new norm. Even a walk to the park is seen through the lens of what could go tragically, dramatically wrong. Not, gee, that sounds nice. Have fun. And generally, when they are allowing their kids to play outside, it's because the park is down the block. Even on the side of the apartment building. Instead of kids walking, feeling comfortable and confident, roaming the neighborhood, it doesn't come up. That idea is foreign, but... It could be because mom is posing the question about playing at the park. Is there ever a way to reverse this ever more anxious attitude about kids' safety? Well, she says there is, but it's a bit chicken and egg. The more kids come back outside, the more normal it seems again. Not nuts. And the way to get more kids back outside is to make this a priority. Some towns have issued declarations saying they want kids out and about. Some schools are sending the kids home with an assignment. Go do something new on your own without your parents. Lenore Skenazy says, look, norms change over time, but they don't have to go in the wrong direction. Share the real crime stats. Get together with friends who want to give their kids more freedom. Start sending kids outside again, and soon it won't seem weird. It'll seem wonderful. I've got a link to this uh, article in today's show notes, which you can find at thebrianheidshow.com. Yeah, I think in a nutshell, my goal, at least today, is I'm trying to normalize normality. And I think we're actually at the point now where even saying the word normal is is somehow considered, you know, discriminatory or exclusive. Hey, what are you talking about normal? There's no such thing as normal. At least I think that's what we're supposed to believe. It's it's hard to tell because really, you know, the the foundation is shifting all over the place here. What, What are we allowed to believe, to say, to think again? Yeah, in in the absence of uh, a straight answer to that, I'm going to stick with normal and invite other people to please do the same. Notice, not force, but invite. This is The Brian Hyde Show.